Hello, We The People listeners. We need your help to make this podcast even better. Please go to bit.ly forward slash We The People podcast to share your feedback about topics, guests, and much more. It takes a few minutes and it will help shape our plans for the new year and beyond. This survey closes on November 30th, but we really want to hear from all of you. So please go to bit.ly forward slash We The People podcast to share your feedback. Thanks so much. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And this week, we look ahead to the future of the Supreme Court during the presidency of Donald Trump. Uh, with Trump's victory and with Republican control of the Senate, it appears likely that the new president will make a Supreme Court appointment soon. This and other appointments have the potential to reshape important areas of the court and the Constitution for years to come. Joining me to discuss the future of the court and the Constitution are two of America's leading constitutional commentators. We're so thrilled to have them on this special podcast. Dahlia Lithwick writes about the courts and the law for Slate and hosts the podcast Amicus, which I've had the honor of appearing on and we're so thrilled to have her. And Jonathan Adler is the inaugural Jonathan Verhey Memorial Professor of Law and Director of the Center for Business and Law Regulation at the Case Western Reserve University School of Law. He blogs at the Vola Conspiracy. Dahlia, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Good to be here. Okay, let's plunge right in. Let us imagine that the new president appoints a justice to replace Justice Scalia soon after he is inaugurated. He's released a list of 21 possible uh, names of appointees. Uh, two of the names that have percolated up to the top recently are Diane Sykes of the Seventh Circuit and William Pryor of the Eleventh Circuit. Jonathan, can you describe the constitutional orientation of those two justices and whether they might be in some areas more or less conservative than Justice Scalia? Sure. Well, let me say, as an initial matter, um, a couple of things that are interesting about both of these potential nominees. Um, they both have experience in state government. Um, Diane Sykes was a trial court judge uh, and then a justice on the Wisconsin Supreme Court before she was on the, the Seventh Circuit. Uh, Bill Pryor was both solicitor general and then attorney general for the state of Alabama uh, before he was became a judge on the Eleventh Circuit. Um, uh, they both are kind of outside of the Beltway, non-Ivy League uh, folk, which is something that's common to most of the folks that are on the Trump list. I, I think as an initial matter, they are both are uh, conservative judges and both would uh, uh, be similar to Scalia in certain broad respects. Uh, I think both uh, are, are adherents to textualism when it comes to statutory interpretation. Both have uh, leanings towards or, or originalism. Uh, in terms of constitutional interpretation. Um, but there are some areas where we might certainly see some differences. Uh, one of the most obvious ones right off the bat, uh, Bill Pryor, uh, when he worked for the state of Alabama, um, filed a brief in the case Gonzalez versus Raich, uh, arguing that uh, the application of the Controlled Substances Act to the intrastate possession of marijuana for medical purposes was unconstitutional. Uh, Justice Scalia voted the other way on that. I think uh, if one looks at Bill Pryor's career, uh, one would expect him to be a very aggressive proponent uh, of federalism. Um, uh, and uh, in terms of uh, 
Judge Sykes, um, she has a lot of experience in in, in criminal law as, as a trial court judge uh, and as a state Supreme Court justice. And I think that experience would likely uh, cause her to evaluate certain sorts of criminal law questions differently uh, than Justice Scalia, who I think often approached those sorts of questions, either from a more theoretical standpoint or from the standpoint of not having had to actually uh, deal with the application of criminal law in the trenches of a trial court. Thanks so much for that. Dahlia, Jonathan's identified two big areas, federalism and law and order issues, where Justice Scalia's replacement might be more conservative in some ways than Justice Scalia himself. Uh, do you agree? And are there other areas where we might see some differences? Yeah, I think um, just to tag on to what Jonathan says, I think that, you know, Justice Scalia was actually sort of an unsung hero to the left on a lot of his decisions uh, particularly around uh, policing and uh, prosecutorial uh, procedures. And so I think, uh, you know, we're, we're going to see uh, with a lot of these judges on uh, Trump's list that, you know, those moments where Scalia kind of defected and judged uh, and aligned himself with the court's liberal wing uh, are going to be actually very consequential. I, I think the other issues that folks are looking at uh, is abortion and where these two judges come down on abortion. We know what Judge Pryor has said about uh, abortion. Uh, he's been pretty open about it. I think he described Roe as, quote, the worst abomination in the history of constitutional law. So I think what you're going to see probably, and this doesn't obviously change because we know how Scalia felt about it, but those are areas on which um, it's going to be really interesting to see if there's a confirmation hearing, if there's any difference. I guess the other thing that's really worth probing, and I'd be interested in what Jonathan thinks about it, is that now we've heard Trump say, you know, I, I'm going to call Obergefell done. <laughs> I'm going to say that Roe v. Wade is uh, still up to be overturned, but uh, marriage equality, as far as I'm concerned, is no longer uh, a live issue. And that is going to be not only interesting in terms of seeing how his base feels about him kind of seeding that, but what those Trump judges uh, think about his, you know, Trump's uh, position that uh, all of those uh, challenges to marriage equality are uh, done and moot. Uh, thanks so much for that. Uh, Jonathan, uh, Dahlia has raised the question of Roe. As she reminds us, uh, Bill Pryor has criticized it strongly. He's also said abor abortion is murder and Roe v. Wade is an abominable decision. Dahlia reminds us that uh, one appointee wouldn't be enough to overturn Roe, but a second Trump appointee might. I want to ask you two questions. First, do you think that the existing Supreme Court justices uh, Alito and Thomas and Chief Justice Roberts would join Trump appointees to overturn Roe if the two Trump appointees were so inclined? And second, what would happen if Roe, v. Over Roe were overturned and abortion went back to the states? How would, it, how, would, how would the landscape look different? Sure. So on the first question, I mean, I think Dolly is absolutely correct that uh, in the near term on these sorts of questions, uh, we're still living in Justice Kennedy's world. And, and so in the context of abortion, for example, um, states can enact the sorts of abortion measures that Justice Kennedy uh, is willing to accept. Um, uh, if we had two Trump appointees that were both uh, critics of Roe uh, and um, who believed that Roe did not have sufficient precedential force 
uh, to justify continuing to follow it, which is a, a, another thing we need to keep our eye on. And something that it's very hard to evaluate lower court judges on is, is what their view of precedent is, since they don't get to overturn precedent, but obviously a Supreme Court justice does. Well, but assuming that we have uh, two uh, new justices who uh, are willing uh, to vote to overturn Roe, uh, Justice Thomas has indicated uh, quite clearly that he is willing to overturn Roe and indeed uh, uh, generally is uh, not very uh, persuaded by arguments that, that erroneous constitutional precedents uh, should be followed. Uh, he's generally willing to overturn pretty much any constitutional decision that he thinks was wrong uh, if it's properly raised. I suspect Justice Alito uh, would also be willing to overturn Roe. Uh, I'm not sure about Chief Justice Roberts. Chief Justice Roberts, I think, has shown um, in a variety of contexts a desire to at least try to play small ball, to try and um, uh, make decisions more incremental, uh, to try and um, uh, uh, stay or not not deviate too far from precedent. Um, this hasn't been a, a uniform thing that he's done, but I think it's been his general tendency. And so I'm not entirely sure that, that he would um, uh, vote to overturn Roe. I, I suspect he would uh, it, it try or prefer to perhaps you know chip away at it slowly uh, to maybe read the Casey decision as being maybe more permissive in terms of what states are allowed to do. Um, uh, uh, so he would, I think, become you know one of the ones to watch on that question. In terms of what you, you know, what, if that, that's such a good answer. Forgive me for interrupting, but I wanted to get Dahlia to respond to it because it's a very interesting observation that Jonathan makes that Chief Justice Roberts might be the pro-precedent moderating force who, who could put a break both on the overturning of Roe and also of Obergefell, from which he dissented. Dahlia, describe Chief Justice Roberts's role on a court composed of, you know, hypothetically two conservative Trump justices plus Alito and Thomas. Uh, what role does he play and how does that play out for marriage equality, abortion, and, and other questions as well? It's such an interesting question, Jeff. I've been saying in the last few weeks until we knew the outcome of this election that one of the most interesting markers of the end of the 2015 term, in my view, was the number of times that the chief justice voted at the center of the court, not at the right of the court. And if you look at those agreement rates that SCOTUS blog puts out, uh, it wasn't just Kennedy who was uh, modulating himself toward the center. It was the chief justice as well in various different ways, but I think in a real effort to not have, you know, four four outcomes in every single case and in an effort to do some of the things that you, Jeff, have written about, you know, that that uh, Roberts is a minimalist. He tries to be humble. He tries uh, to find some point of agreement and, and uh, not be too grandiose. You know, all the things that Roberts uh, sort of said that what he wanted to do in the spirit of John Marshall, you know, more unanimity, more uh, minimalism. And I think we saw a very different John Roberts emerge at the end of last term. Uh, so we all sort of said, oh, it was Kennedy's term. It was Kennedy's term. And in, in many ways it was. But I think we also saw exactly uh, what you and Jonathan are describing, which is John Roberts institutionalist, who first and foremost, you know, takes the court out of the front pages of the paper, tries very much to mitigate against arguments that 
this is a purely partisan court. And I think Jonathan's also right that the only person on the court who is, you know, and Justice Scalia used to say, the only person on the court who's openly, you know, has no value for stare decisis is Clarence Thomas, you know, and there's an interesting uh, piece by Randy Barnett in the Wall Street Journal talking about how this metric will play out going forward, uh, how much, um, you know, stare decisis is going to matter to Trump nominees. But I absolutely agree with the premise that I think we saw a kind of interesting new uh, side of John Roberts at the end of last term. You know, famously, we saw it in the Affordable Care Act cases. But I think just generally, if we look and parse what he's been trying to do uh, as the court became kind of a football in this election, it may not be incorrect to say that he will try to mediate some of the really, really strong uh, ideological forces at both ends of the court. Fascinating. Um, Jonathan, uh, pick up on that theme and what are other areas? Well, let me ask you uh, straight out. Might the institutionalist Roberts vote to uphold Obergefell and, and the marriage equality decision from which he dissented? And what are other areas in which he might play this mediating role determined to preserve the legitimacy of the court and make it not appear to be five Republicans against four Democrats? Uh, and I think I think it's certainly possible that he would. I mean, we know that that in um, statutory cases, uh, certainly where precedent is, is has a stronger force, the chief justice has gone out of his way uh, to you know, lay down a marker about the importance of stare decisis. There was a, a an oral argument in a climate change case um, a couple of years ago where I think the chief justice correctly uh, recognized that that the folks challenging the EPA's regulation were trying to undo a case called Massachusetts versus EPA. And in oral argument, he basically says, well, you're not asking us to do that because we don't do that, right? And and making clear that that there it is important sometimes for the court to assume that an issue is truly settled. On, on these particular types of questions, I think I think we're likely to to to, to see two things, or at least there's two things we want to keep focus on. One is I think that uh, a, a court with a new conservative majority or a strengthened conservative majority um, will be pushed on abortion far more aggressively than it will be pushed on same-sex marriage. Um, you know, I, I think the country uh, has rapidly come to accept same-sex marriage uh, as as the new status quo in a way that abortion for, for a variety of reasons never was. And and we we already see states regularly enacting laws that are that have as their purpose trying to create test cases that will hopefully go to the court. And, and so the court will necessarily have to confront more of these cases um, than, I, than I think it will in same-sex marriage. I think in the same-sex marriage context, we're more likely to see cases that are probing how far does this go? Uh, uh, what does this mean for uh, whether or not um, homosexuality or sexual preference or even gender identity is a protected class? Or how do we interpret other sorts of laws in light of, of, of Obergefell. The other thing I would just quickly note is, is that's Chief Justice. Uh, John Roberts you know, retains the ability to keep a decision for himself whenever he wants it, which me, and, and William Rehnquist as chief would often use this power as a way of writing a more modest majority opinion than perhaps uh, the opinion that another justice would have written. 
uh, Chief Justice Roberts clerked for, for Justice Rehnquist and certainly has used him as a model in some respects. And so in a lot of these sorts of cases, um, you know, say in an abortion case, he could take the opinion for the court, write uh, an opinion perhaps of holding uh, a state law that looks a lot like the Texas law that was struck down this past term, um, but do so without really challenging the underlying precedents. Um, and, and I think we'd want to watch for him to use that uh, authority in such a court uh, fairly aggressively um, to try and maintain a minimalist a a approach. And, and I think it would carry over into a lot of areas that are are highly controversial, what we might call social issues. I, I would expect to see that in, in at least some racial issues, certainly a lot of issues relating to, to sex and sexual identity. Wonderful. Well, let us now talk about John Roberts, Donald Trump, and the regulatory state. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts in the Arlington case uh, talked about a vast and varied federal bureaucracy poking into every nook and cranny of daily life. And he joined four other conservative justices in the Affordable Care Act case in embracing a narrow vision of Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce. Uh, deregulation is at the heart of the agenda, both of President-elect Trump and the Republican Senate. There are a series of regulations that are in the crosshairs from the Clean Power Plan, the Clean Water Rule, the Ozone Rule, the Fracking Rule, the Dodd-Frank Regulations, the Financial Advisor Rule, the Overtime Rule. I'm reading all these rules from our phenomenal constitutional prep team. Dahlia, I want to ask you, it's a big and important question. To what degree might uh, the court be leading this deregulatory push under Chief Justice Roberts, in which four, uh, five conservative justices might be striking down the regulatory state? And to what degree would they simply be deferring to uh, deregulation passed by the Republican president in Congress? Yeah, I think uh, I keep hearing people say that this, you know, one one certain thing you can say about uh, the court and executive power is that it entirely seems to turn on who the executive in question is, uh, and that there doesn't seem to be a sort of, that I can discern, a, a really principled uh, difference. Uh, so that'll be interesting going forward. I, I do think you're going to see, uh, you know, much less pushback against Trump regulations. Uh, I think you're going to see, a, you know, much more deferential court uh, when it comes to you know, Trump's efforts and Congress's efforts to kind of slowly uh, pull apart the regulatory state. I may be wrong, but I think that there are a lot of issues on where Trump's views and the Republican in, in Congress views and the conservative members of uh, the Roberts courts actually are in alignment. It almost seems to me, I think Orrin Kerr wrote about it this week uh, in the Volat Conspiracy. But I think the interesting question is where you're going to see actual fractures uh, between between them, because I think that that is going to be, and we, it's very, very hard to predict now uh, where the fractures may be between uh, what Congress attempts to pass, what Trump is pushing, and what uh, conservative members on the Supreme Court say is a bridge too far. I think that's a you know probably the most intriguing question going forward. And I actually don't have a working hypothesis, although I'd love to hear uh, Jonathan's. Yes, let's let's hear it. Uh, Jonathan Dolly does ask a fascinating question. You have studied uh, deregulation in the courts uh, for years. Can you identify some of those fracture points where 
the court, uh, the president, and Congress might diverge? And more broadly, what is the regulatory state likely to look like uh, in four years? Sure. Well, well, a couple of things. One is I, I do think it, as an initial matter, um, the Supreme Court actually uh, eight years ago gave um, a gift to the executive branch in a case called Fox Television versus FCC. The the issue was, uh, uh, you know, forget the exact phrase, but it was it was uh, basically spontaneous use of profanity in live broadcast and the extent to which the government could could punish broadcasters for that. And the FCC had changed its mind. And an opinion written by Justice Scalia, which interestingly enough came out in January 2009, the court said that um, there is no extra burden when the government changes its mind. And uh, I certainly expect the Trump administration to be pointing to that case um, uh, quite frequently. Of course, the irony is, is that that case you know, came out at the very beginning of the Obama administration. Uh, going forward, I, I think that um, it will be interesting to see how the justices divide on some of these questions. In the Arlington case, uh, Jeff, that you mentioned before, uh, that was a case in, Chief, in which Chief Justice Roberts dissented, joined by Kennedy and um, uh, Alito, uh, from an opinion written by Justice Scalia. A and one of the issues in that case was uh, to what extent or in what contexts should courts defer to regulatory agencies? Uh, and and uh, Chief Justice Roberts was... Um, arguing that there are certain types of questions relating to how much power an agency has that courts should not defer to agencies about, because agencies obviously are going to be self-interested when they decide how much power Congress has given them. Justice Scalia said, well, you know, these types of questions are too hard to separate from run-of-the-mill interpretive questions. We should just always defer uh, uh, in these sorts of contexts. And, and Justice Thomas joined Justice Scalia on that. So it's certainly possible that even among the more conservative justices, we might see um, uh, some splits in terms of uh, when we defer to uh, a regulatory agency, when the executive branch gets gets to uh, interpret certain sorts of things. I think the chief justice actually has already uh, indicated he is skeptical of some assertions of executive power in the regulatory context. Um, I, I'm, it's not clear to me that too many of the other justices really have strong commitments in this area, and and I don't think we know enough about um, uh, Trump's potential nominees in this area. Uh, you know, he he has not identified anyone from the D.C. Circuit uh, on his short list, and the D.C. Circuit is is the lower court that sees the most of these sorts of cases. So it's not entirely clear what sorts of divisions we'd see along these lines. Dahlia, uh, as, as you've written for years and, and we've all observed, uh, liberals have long feared the resurrection of a kind of pre-New Deal constitution in exile where limitations on federal power dormant since the 1930s would be resurrected and much of our regulatory state could be dismantled from environmental regulations to health and safety regulations and so forth. Is that a dystopia or is it a real possibility? And in four years, what's what's the worst that could happen in the deregulatory front? Uh, can I, I want to back up and question the premise, if I may, Jeff, and I do this only because I was taught to do this in law school. Um, and, and <laughs> I, 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 think, and I, I wonder if, if Jonathan and you and I might stipulate that we are talking as though it's a given that 
well, let's agree that the, the one given is that there's a seat to fill and Trump will fill it. And that the other given is we have Ruth Bader Ginsburg is 83. Anthony Kennedy is 80. Uh, and Dave, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Stephen Breyer is 78. So we, we could be talking about three seats in four years. I think we all agree on that. I think the premise I want to question before we go any further is whether we're 100% certain that Donald Trump is going to be bound by his list of 21, his curated list of 21 potential justices. And I know that um, Jonathan and I have talked about it. I know that uh, you know, the list went up and then there was sort of a footnote that said, or someone like them. Uh, I know that the list has actually come down in the past week. In other words, I, I think some of these questions, uh, we, we sort of assume that the list was farmed out to the Heritage Foundation and the Federalist Society, and they, you know, produced a list of 21 people. But I, I'm not 100% sure that I believe that Donald Trump doesn't pull some kind of Harriet Myers. Um, and so I guess before before I, I go too, too far down the road talking about what a Trump court does as though he's going to put a Brett Kavanaugh and a Paul Clement up, I just wonder if anybody but me thinks that he could do something really wacky instead. Well, Jonathan, accept Dahlia's good uh, challenge hypothetical, which might not be a hypothetical Imagine that a Donald Trump goes off the list. What kind of justice might diverge from the uh, f uh, perspective that was represented by the 21 judges? You know, let's think of a wild card. Peter Thiel claimed that he was vetted as a possible justice during the campaign, although the campaign later walked that back. I'm, uh, imagine Jared Kushner were, you know, nominated to the to the court. How how would the debate we're having change, and and how might they diverge from Republican orthodoxy? Sure. Well, I, I do think that that the first pick will come from the list, and I and I do believe the campaign or the transition has said that. I I think Dolly is correct, though, that we shouldn't necessarily assume that any subsequent pick um, uh, would come from the list. And 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 if we're going to hypothesize about how a subsequent pick might differ. It, it, I think the thing to, to to consider is that presidents' views of what sort of justices they want are uh, affected by the president's experience in office and the extent to which they see the courts facilitating or obstructing their agenda. Franklin Roosevelt's an obvious example of this, uh, but I think it's also uh, widely um, accepted that President Bush, for example, after 9/11, uh, was very conscious uh, in 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 making uh, judicial picks, particularly to the Supreme Court, that he was concerned about a court not getting too much in the way of the executive branch's ability to uh, uh, pursue the war on terror. And so, um, I, I certainly. Think that Dolly is right that it's that it's possible that after the first pick, if Donald Trump were to get a, a second or third pick, that he might then say, "Well, my list was for the first pick. You know, times have changed and need to consider more people. And if, for example, um, the Trump administration finds the courts to be an obstacle to certain initiatives uh, in, in certain areas, maybe it's immigration, maybe something else, I, I would not be at all surprised." Uh, to see that experience influence uh, a subsequent pick. And that is to say that the administration is worried about making sure certain types of things get upheld. Um, that might alter uh, the sorts of people they look at. 
okay, the administration might be worried that certain things be upheld. Let us focus on that question, Dahlia. On what sort of issues might a Trump court, even with one uh, Trump justice uh, replacing Justice Scalia, check President Trump? Uh, We've seen a lot of commentary recently about Trump's more extreme proposals during the campaign, like opening up the libel laws or deporting Muslims as a religious category, uh, which uh, the current justices might uh, push back on strongly. But lay out for us the range of issues. Jonathan mentioned immigration. Maybe there are others where you could imagine a Trump court checking the excesses of a President Trump. Uh, I, I just think there are so many. And I, and I think what you said initially, Jeff, is so critical, which is, you know, those of us who are reacting to uh, Donald Trump's campaign rhetoric about the Bill of Rights are possibly reacting to something that is not going to manifest, right? Almost immediately after saying, you know, oh, I'm going to have a special prosecutor who's going to do nothing but find some crime to lock Hillary Clinton up. uh, You know, he, as soon as he won the election, he said, well, that's not going to be a priority. So it's very, very hard, I think, to differentiate between the campaign rhetoric about the Bill of Rights and what may in fact manifest. But you're quite right. I think if you look at the First Amendment uh, and questions about press freedom and questions about uh, dissent, uh, there are, I, I think that the court is all over the place on the First Amendment. This is not a necessarily uh, an ideological issue at the Supreme Court. And it'll be interesting to see uh, what gets checked. I mean, beyond the fact that the president as executive doesn't get to change uh, libel laws, and the president doesn't, uh, as president, get to institute national stop and frisk. But I think if you kind of go bump, bump, bump down the Bill of Rights, you can see the places in which it looks as though you know something that feels like a national stop and frisk policy would raise very serious constitutional questions where the court wouldn't be behind him. You know, Fifth Amendment questions about whether you can expect. Uh, Muslims to have some higher burden to self-incriminate or to incriminate others because of their uh, religion. You know, I think that it's fair to say, again, back to the First Amendment, you know, his notions about uh, religious, uh, you know, sort of taking down the wall between church and state and starting to create something that looks more like majority religions in the public square. I, I don't know that these issues, and again, it's hard to take him Uh, at his word that these are things that he really plans to enact. And some of them, I think, are just talk. Uh, But I do think that in addition to questions about birthright citizenship and questions about, um, you know, religious oaths uh, and, and, uh, you know, other things that he sort of spews, that there isn't going to be clear, you know, he's got visions for the future of Guantanamo that I suspect will not Uh, garner huge uh, support at the court. So I almost think you have to parse them individually and then try to map them onto what the court has said in the past. But I also think it requires doing a thing that we're almost not capable of doing, which is projecting forward and saying which of these areas are really going to be priorities. If he's really saying, as he is saying this week, or his surrogates are saying, I think Korematsu is good law, and we should really think about uh, registries. I think it's going to be hard to get five votes on the court for that. Fascinating. Uh, Jonathan, Dahlia just went, as she so wonderfully put it, down the Bill of Rights, bump, 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 and we talked about the First Amendment, religious oaths, birthright citizenship. 
uh, the Fifth Amendment, uh, the Fourth Amendment, and stop and frisk. Can you take us down the structural Constitution and talk about the kind of provisions, uh, limitations on the president's Article II power or attempts to define Congress's power under Article I, uh, where a Trump court could check some of a President Trump's uh, executive orders or other constitutional excesses? Sure. Well, I certainly I think that um, uh, a Trump court or a court that that is is heavily influenced by by Trump's nominations, assuming we get more than one, you know, from this list or similar sorts of of uh, a similar sort of nominee, is um, we could see um, a fifth vote for uh, curtailing federal power uh, a little more aggressively than the court has been willing to uh, a, a real revival, perhaps of of the project William Rehnquist began of trying to def narrow the scope of federal power. And, um, you know, I'm not sure Trump administration would always be so happy about that. To use one area that issue that's come up, the issue of sanctuary cities, under current law, um, the federal government cannot require state and local governments to implement and enforce federal immigration law. Uh, a lot of conservatives I don't like that. I think uh, as a candidate, Donald Trump indicated that he did not like that. Uh, the current court, uh, I think, would hold uh, that uh, that principle still applies, that if the federal government wants to enforce its immigration rules, the federal government must do the dirty work. It can't rely upon state and local governments or require state and local governments to do, to do that, that sanctuary cities are perfectly constitutional. Uh, and I suspect that the sorts of folks that um, Donald Trump has identified as potential nominees would hold hold to that principle and would continue to uphold the principle that um, state and local governments do have the ability to sit on the sidelines um, and not cooperate with with federal law. Um, uh, and I think what would be interesting is that you know especially if someone like Bill Pryor were uh, confirmed to the court, wh whether or not the court would be willing to perhaps. Um, uh, impose greater restrictions on, for example, the court's ability or the, the Congress's ability to place conditions on the receipt of federal funding, which is the way the federal government tries to get around the anti-commandeering rule. If we can't tell you state and local governments what to do, we'll just say that you don't get as much money to help with law enforcement or schools or what have you. Um, you know, the a Trump court might be reluctant to let the federal government do too much in in that in that way and I think that would um, come at the expense of of what the administration would do one last example um, uh, in the immigration case uh, from this last term um, you know one possible that the court split four to four but what that seemed to indicate is that the conservative justices perhaps were uncomfortable if not with the the specifics of Obama's policy, uncomfortable with the idea that the executive branch could do that without going through a more complete administrative process. And I, I think, um, I suspect that, that, that President-elect Trump and his administration will be in for a surprise uh, when it comes to how much administrative process is often required to change certain types of policies and will, will not be happy that lower courts, and I think a Supreme Court, even with a Trump nominee, is likely to to continue to uphold those requirements. And, and that will make it harder to do some of the things uh, administratively or by, by executive fiat that, that a President Trump might want to do. Very interesting. Uh, okay, let me go to Dahlia. Uh, 
Thanks so much for that. Uh, Dahlia, Jonathan mentioned sanctuary cities and the fact that state and local governments can currently refuse to enforce uh, federal immigration laws. Could that cut in an opposite direction? And could you imagine liberals rediscovering uh, what our mutual hero Louis Brandeis called the states as laboratories of democracy and having liberal state enclaves like California, which had more progressive policies than the federal government uh, attempting to opt out of, of more conservative uh, Trump policies? And, and, and might the conservative justices then be uh, asked to put their money where their mouth is when it comes to states' rights? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting question. And we're already seeing just this week, uh, sanctuary cities fighting back against, you know, saying, we absolutely are not um, going to modify in any way, uh, our policies and, uh, you know, come and get us if you have a problem with that. And I do think that what you're going to see, and I think this goes back uh, to Jonathan's uh, claim about even Roe, which is, you know, you are going to see, I think, blue states that uh, become very blue and red states that become uh, very red. And there will be, there's no doubt in my mind that all you need to do is you don't need to overturn Roe, as Jonathan says, you can chip away, you can uh, cut out the heart of the whole women's health uh, decision. And there will be states like Mississippi and Louisiana that have no clinics left. Uh, I think you're going to simply see a continuation of what we've seen already in so many of these contexts where both what happens at the state courts and we haven't talked about, but we should talk about the fact that Obama made a massive impact uh, in his uh, court uh, appointments at the district and circuit court level. So we like to talk about this as though it's only the Supreme Court at stake, but let's remember that the Supreme Court takes 70 some cases a year and that there are entire uh, federal circuit courts that flipped blue uh, over uh, Obama's eight years in office. And so I think they will also have a huge, huge impact going forward, uh, you know, irrespective of what the Supreme Court does in some of these areas. And so I do think that you're going to see both real changes at the state level in efforts to uh, sort of promote some of the rights that uh, are going to be eroded. And I think you're going to certainly see uh, an all out war over sort of these religious uh, dissenter cases and, and the ways in which uh, jurisdictions are going to try to, and I think we may see federal actions that mirror uh, what Mike Pence did in Indiana, where we're going to try to create huge space for uh, religious objectors to deny services and deny other things uh, to uh, gay uh, couples. And so I just think this is where I think the rubber hits the road is where you're going to see states kind of very much at variance on those sorts of issues. And I think that you are going to probably see a real flip uh, at the court where we hear, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg saying, oh, courts are, <laughs> they should absolutely, states should become uh, the places of I innovation and experimentation and, uh, you know, real latitude, at least from, from the progressives on the court to allow some of that to happen. Fascinating, Jonathan. It's such an interesting uh, question. I'd love for you to weigh in on it, too. What are specific areas where the states, as liberal laboratories of democracy, might be taking more progressive positions than uh, the federal government under President uh, Trump, and, and how might the two interact at the Supreme Court? 
Well, I, mean, I certainly think that Dahlia is right that um, a Trump-influenced Supreme Court and eventually uh, Trump-influenced lower courts um, will be less likely to you know, push in a, in a progressive direction when it comes to um, um, the protecting the rights of, of uh, minority groups or, or protecting things like gender identity and sexual preference. And so uh, insofar as, as you're going to see protection, you know, non-discrimination protections and the like, that's going to occur at the state level. And we've, we've seen this before in the sense of um, instances in which state courts became more aggressive at um, identifying constitutional rights in state constitutions, um, which you know also insulates those decisions from Supreme Court review because there's no federal question. I think the other thing that Dahlia mentioned that is that is that is also true is that this will not be uniform. That is to say that that blue states, I think, will continue to push in a progressive direction in these areas, um, and that red states will not, and that the area where I think the Supreme Court is most likely to be called in to 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 deal with conflict is in questions uh, relating to religious liberty and the extent to which uh, states are either obligated or permitted uh, to uh, allow for the rights of, for example, religious dissenters to uh, not perform uh, certain functions, not participate in certain sorts of functions and the like. Um, uh, there was a case uh, uh, last term, I guess, where Justice Alito had dissented from the denial of cert um, on this. I, I believe it related to, to the right of, of pharmacists, if I recall correctly, to to not prescribe um, uh, certain medications. Um, you know, we may see similar issues rise with uh, religious hospitals and the like. Uh, and so, so that's an area where the ability of blue states to continue to push in a more progressive direction might be limited uh, by the court. Uh, um, but I say might because I, I'm not uh, I'm not entirely sure that um, all of the current conservative justices or even that uh, Trump appointees uh, would uh, be all that quick to impose uh, a national rule for these sorts of questions. Uh, we should recall that um, uh, Justice Scalia actually wrote. Uh, an important case called um, Employment Division versus Smith that actually gave governments at all levels a lot more leeway uh, to enact laws that um, obligate uh, religious adherents to do things they might not want to do. Um, uh, that was that at the federal level that was uh, partially undone by the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Uh, but I would not be surprised if if Trump nominees think that Scalia was correct in Smith. And if so, that would give um, individual states a lot more leeway to strike the balance between religious liberty and other concerns in a different way uh, from the way that conservatives might want to. Fascinating. Dahlia, what is the role of the liberal uh, wing of the court in this new era? Uh, until now, the liberals had been in favor of judicial deference when it came to federal laws, when they were passed by uh, President Obama and uh, in favor of judicial engagement. I think that's the new term when it comes to uh, rights like Roe v. Wade and, and marriage equality. Uh, does that flip now? And how, does, how do they justify it? Well, I think it goes back to what Jonathan said at the beginning, which is at least for the near term, I think it almost matters not at all. We're going to continue to have a 4-4 court with Anthony Kennedy uh, paving the way forward. And I think that Kennedy's uh, major shifts last year, both on uh, abortion and on affirmative action, you know, both areas where uh, I think 
it was a huge surprise because it was a shift very much in conflict with his prior positions in both those areas, uh, suggests that uh, even if Trump gets uh, a seat, the a Scalia seat, we may actually see, uh, in, at least in the short term, um, and assuming an awful lot of kind of Vitamix for the older justices, uh, we may see a court in which uh, the liberal wing does, you know, continues to do what they began to do at the end of last term, which is push as hard as they possibly can, work together in ways that uh, we haven't always seen from the liberal wing of the court, try very, very hard to get on side with Justice Kennedy and uh, really almost assume that they're still in the ascendancy unless and until one of those three older justices is replaced. So I actually think that the, the short game is going to be really intriguing to watch, Jeff. And then I think if you know the actual t actuarial tables are correct and there are some replacements, then you are certainly correct that the game uh, becomes you know uh, a different game and it becomes uh, closer to what we saw in the Bush era, you know, constraining. Uh, executive power and trying to, uh, you know, sort of play a role, trying to check the majority of the court. Uh, but I, I do think that, you know, watch Anthony Kennedy. We, I feel like you and I have been saying this to each other for years, but watch Anthony Kennedy because, um, and, and this is a huge uh, unknown for me as well, but my my instinct tells me, and again, I'd be curious to, to hear what um, Jonathan thinks about this, but I, I think that Anthony Kennedy, more than anything, uh, dislikes incivility and dislikes name calling and dislikes polemic. And I, I, I would not be surprised if Anthony Kennedy is more on board than a lot of us believe uh, in checking the Trump project if the Trump project deviates uh, very much from, you know, this sort of country club conservative project that he signed on for. So that's just rank speculation on my part. But I, I suspect that this uh, kind of bullying that we're hearing uh, in the early stages of the Trump presidency will not sit well with Anthony Kennedy. And we may have a court that's not as 441 and uh, not as tolerant uh, of this executive than we expect. Well, that's a great question, Dahlia, uh, which you asked to Jonathan, so I'll ask it as well. C uh, can you identify areas where a Kennedy court, perhaps even joined by some Trump justices, might uh, check a President Trump, recoil from a more aggressive nationalism, and basically impose limits on his uh, constitutional actions? Well, I, mean, I think I think it certainly is possible, and I think you know, one one wild card that that the whole Trump phenomenon creates is that um, you know, he uh, and and his his team, such as such as it is thus far, doesn't seem constrained by the traditional ways of advancing policy, talking about policy, uh, and the like. And the court in these in this respect is a very lowercase c conservative institution. And um, the court historically pays a lot of attention to what the Solicitor General says because the court assumes the Solicitor General is going to present issues in a particular way, cognizant of their historical significance, cognizant of the broader context. The court trusts the Solicitor General's office to present things fairly and accurately. 
And there's a whole tradition and body of knowledge that that the Solicitor General's office brings in, in when it comes before the court. Donald Trump, in a lot of contexts, has shown an impatience for doing things the way they've been done before. And it's certainly conceivable that, and we won't know until we know who the attorney general is and so on, but it's certainly conceivable that a Donald Trump Justice Department will be pushed to go beyond these boundaries and to not act the way the Solicitor General's office traditionally does. And if it were to do that, uh, I would think that that it wouldn't just be Justice Kennedy, but there would be quite a few justices that would recoil uh, and that would um, not want, would, would be put off by um, a failure to adhere to these traditions and, and to recognize the important role that, that the Solicitor General plays and the constraints that places on the sorts of arguments that the Solicitor General's office can make. And I, I was, you know, we, we saw during the Bush administration in some of the national security cases, um, the, the court was, in, in some cases, I would, I would argue, put off a little bit by what seemed to be an unnecessarily aggressive posture that the Bush administration took in some of the national security cases. And, and some have hypothesized that in the Obama administration and some domestic policy cases, that there were a handful of cases like Hosanna Tabor, perhaps, or Noel Canning, where the court was also put off by kind of unduly aggressive arguments made by, uh, by the Obama administration. And I think what that indicates is that um, if a Trump administration doesn't let itself be constrained by um, you know, kind of the normal way of, of, of presenting issues and presenting questions and, and taking account of history uh, and the way things are presented, that it could be very counterproductive. And, and there's good reason to believe that a current court and even a court with some Trump-appointed uh, justices uh, would not uh, take kindly to that and, and would not be very receptive to that. I don't know if we can identify the specific contexts in which it would occur, um, but I think that that's a, a broader you know, broader phenomenon we want to pay attention to, that, that, that you know, Donald Trump's the old rules don't apply to me approach um, may work in some areas. Uh, but when it comes to dealing with the Supreme Court, that, that is not likely to be a recipe for success. Thanks so much for that. Um, Jonathan mentioned two cases, and some of our listeners have asked me to disaggregate because I know things go quickly. Hosanna Tabor was a case where the court in 2012 unanimously ruled that federal discrimination laws don't apply to religious organizations' selection of religious leaders, rejecting the Obama administration's position, and Noel Canning. The recess appointment case was another case where the court rejected the Obama administration's position, and Jonathan just said that it did so for institutionalist reasons. Oh, this has just been superb, uh, Jonathan Dahlia, and it's time for Closing arguments, Dahlia, I'm going to begin with you. And the question is, assume President-elect Trump has two appointments to the Supreme Court. In four years, how do the court and the Constitution look different? Uh, I, I mean, I think, you know, the whole world looks different. I think uh, assuming that, uh, you know, he gets a real majority uh, and and that, you know, one of the, the vacancies that you're talking about is a Justice Ginsburg or a Justice Breyer, you are looking at, uh, you know, decades of rollbacks of uh, the Warren Court uh, worldview. I think that for, you know, workers, for minorities, for women, you know, the achievements of the last uh, decades are really imperiled. Uh, and I do think, you know, this has been, and we haven't talked about this much, but we, we I think, can agree this has been one of the most pro-business courts we've seen 
uh, in history. And I think that business, which already has, a, I think, a fairly heavy thumb on the scale at this court, uh, will really, really prevail in ways that we have not uh, begun to imagine. And so I think, you know, for, for my purposes, uh, going forward, it's going to be, and I completely agree with what Jonathan says, I think that you have to keep your eye on the fact that of all the institutions that have come crumbling down uh, over the past uh, year, the court is not going to be one of them. The court is going to very much continue to be a place that is predicated in reason, rule of law, uh, you know, genteel respect and discourse. But I do think with all that said, we are going to see a slow erosion of what have been huge victories for the environment, for workers, for women, uh, and not, you know, just, uh, you know, in at the margins, I think at the very core, that's going to become the project. Thank you very much indeed for that. Jonathan, last word to you and same question. Assuming President-elect Trump has two appointees, how do the court and the Constitution look different in four years? Sure. Uh, first, let me say, uh, Dolly and I, I think, would probably disagree on on the court and and its approach to business. But that's a that, that's a discussion I think for for another day. But on on the the way the court would change, I think the the best way to understand the impact of two nominations is the center of the court switches from Justice Kennedy, who on some issues is very liberal and on some issues is very conservative, um, to Chief Justice Roberts, and and that is significant because I think Chief Justice Roberts. Uh, is you know more willing uh, to limit federal power, less willing to um, embrace progressive arguments, uh, particularly in areas relating to sexual autonomy, uh, uh, like like in cases like Obergefell, and and I what I think that would mean is that the court would become much closer to the court that conservatives have have long said they wanted, um, but because uh, of 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 I guess an inability to to pick justices that would necessarily um, vote on the court the way conservatives may have wanted them to, the court that conservatives have been searching for but but not uh, have not obtained. Of course, this assumes that that the nominees uh, are um, uh, of the sort that we expect that a second nomination would also come from the list that Trump provided or uh, a similar list. Um, and and we've already talked about how we're not we have we can't be too confident of that. Uh, but I think the, the bottom line is that it, it, the center of the court shifts from Justice Kennedy to Chief Justice Roberts. And if you look at the sorts of cases where they've disagreed, that's where we would see the most dramatic shift in the court's jurisprudence. Thank you so much, Jonathan Adler and Dahlia Lith Lithwick, for a truly illuminating, surprising, and uh, thought-provoking discussion of this hugely important question of what the Trump court is going to look like. It would be wonderful to have you both back to continue to follow this fascinating constitutional drama over the years to come. Jonathan, Dahlia, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you both. Today's show was engineered by Kevin Kilborn and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. We want to know what you think of the podcast. Please go to bit.ly forward slash We The People podcast to share your feedback. Please subscribe to We The People and to our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We The People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster at panoply.fm. And finally, ladies and gentlemen, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. 
We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. That mission of bringing both sides together for civil constitutional dialogue is more urgent now than ever. Please consider becoming a member to find out about our great programs and to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.